The Feeling Sound podcast is brought to you in association with Urbanista. Urbanista is an online magazine for creatives where you can reach a like-minded audience of fellow urbanistas. Hello and welcome to episode seven of the Feeling Sound podcast. On this episode, I'm here at the amazing LMA studios in the Met Quarter in the heart of Liverpool, and I've come along to speak to Nick Kilrow. Nick is one of the teachers here at LMA. He was one of the founder members of the Black Velvets, and he's also the longest serving drummer in Echo and the Bunnymen. I managed to catch up with Nick in between some of his lessons, and I asked him what it was like to be asked to play alongside legends like Ian McCulloch and Will Sargent, and to talk to me about his illustrious career in music. So Nick, many people would probably know you best as being one of the drummers for Echo and the Bunnymen. Um, what does that feel like? How does that feel for you? An honour, really, I would say. Um, I think from, like, from, from being a Liverpoolian as well, the Bunnymen are probably one of the most important bands that have ever come out of the city. I noticed it in the first like year or two when I joined the band, because um, they always used to do gigs in Liverpool and went to a few myself and always thought, what an interesting band, because for the Bunnymen, um, they're, they're, they're sort of the, first, the first four albums are seminal, aren't they? You know? And for me to, to be asked to play for that band was, it, yeah, it was just an honour, it really was, and, and it was quite thrown in at the deep end as well. I remember, for um for those in Liverpool, Crash Studios, which used to be um the place where most bands rehearsed. I always remember seeing the Bunny Men in there. They used to have like a blackboard in the bar area where all the band names were written down. And you'd always see the Bunny Men in room one. And it was always kind of like a thing in Liverpool to rehearse in room one. That was like a real milestone, like a, a stepping point. Um but I was in there with the previous band, Black Velvets. That's probably where it all started properly for me. Um and I was just playing in a room and Peasy, the manager, walked in, who I knew anyway. Uh, he just come in and sort of clocked me playing and walked out again. And then next thing I had a phone call saying, would you be interested? Um, I had one rehearsal with uh, with Will and then a sort of half a song with Mac. <laughs> and then the next thing I was like a week later playing the first gig, which is the Isle of Skye, um, a festival with uh, Kasabian and a few other bands. and. Yeah, it wasn't, I, I, I don't know why, I, I imagined it to be like a longer process of me rehearsing with the band and sort of getting a feel for it, but it literally was a run through with the bass player of the set and then next thing I was on a bus going up to the Isle of Skye. So I didn't really have time to think about it, but now, like I did 10 years with the Bunnymen, so now when I think back, it was probably the best way of going about being in that band because if I'd have stopped and thought and knew about how revered that band is, especially when the first time I went to America with them, it was like, wow, these are huge. You know, um, but yeah, just I look back on it, just a, a great honour and great drum parts to play. It's like Peter Freitas is still like still arguably one of the my favourite drummers, and he was so interesting with the parts that he played, and he didn't do the norm, and it was just a real honour to play them parts. I can remember running home, running home from a record shop on Lavender Hill where I grew up. I ran home with Heaven Up Here. And, and I can remember putting it on and just playing it, turning it over, playing it, turning it over. That was what the bunny men were for me back in the day. Um, what did it feel like when you first sat at the drums there with Will Sargent and Mac there? I kind of knew Mac anyway, because there used to be, well, actually recently it's just gone past these studios. Um, but there was a bar upstairs called um, 3345. And Mac used to be in there a lot. So we kind of, obviously a big Liverpool fan like Mac is, so we kind of knew each other. Um, but then sitting down with Mac and his guitar, and more importantly, Will as well, it was a bit like, wow, you know, these are legends. And I felt at ease with it because I was given like three songs to learn and, you know, I did my homework. But yeah, just to sit down and sort of play them songs with, with, with them two individuals in particular it was just, wow, there's a connection here. You know, that's how, that's how I felt anyway. And I kind of reacted to the way Max sung or the way Will played guitar. Like the party plays are really thought out. And, you know, it, it, like it's, it's like another voice, what Will does. 
on his guitar. You know, he's not really interested in playing chords. You know, he's looking for a melody line or he's looking for something to sort of spike the song along and you kind of react to that. But yeah, sitting down with them for the first time was like, wow, you know, this is this is cool. Excited, you know. And um, you mentioned that album, Heaven Up Here. That was one of the first things I spoke to Will about because he was asking about like my influences and Will is a fanatic about music. Like some my, my memories of, of being in the band with Will was like, the, have you have you heard this? Have you heard that? And a lot of the time he would play your stuff. So you get, you're getting all this musical information. It was like a lesson being around Will. But he told me anyway about Heaven Up Here, no symbols on that record. Um, there are, but the whole sort of premise of the drums around that album, you know, that kind of Tom feel with it, it's all very kind of tribal, that's how I would describe it. So playing them parts as well. You know, I've been in other sorts of bands and other musical scenarios and contexts where like you are just playing for the song, but with the Bunnymen, especially with them four albums, them for them, the first four albums, you feel like the drums were an integral part of that. So it's not like I could go in and do my own sort of take on that. I realized from the get-go I had to play them parts because if I didn't play them parts, it wouldn't be the Bunnymen. You mentioned the songs that you were you were auditioned to play. Do you remember what they were? Yeah. Um, Lips Like Sugar. Kill a Moon. Nothing Lasts Forever. Nothing ever lasts forever. Nothing ever lasts forever. Nothing ever lasts forever. Nothing ever lasts forever. That was my first song I knew about the Bunnyman because I remember like 96 or 97 when that came out. I remember the BBC Glastonbury coverage. That was when I first became aware of the Bunnyman. And I remember like um, Joe Wiley and whoever it was, like probably Steve Lamarck or someone like that, talking about the return of the Bunnyman. So it was a big thing. But yeah, I remember getting them songs and sort of thinking, okay, well, I already know, nothing lasts forever. And then when I listened to Lips Like Sugar, I was like, oh, I remember that riff. And then the Killer Moon, obviously, it's been in so many different films and different sorts of contexts. So, again, yeah, it was like what an introduction to play them songs, you know. Um, and then you get into the other stuff like Rescue and Back of Love. Oh, sorry, Back of Love was one as well, because that's got that kind of like he plays it sort of overarm cross thing, and it's like the floor tom going all the way through. So trying to get my head around that, you know, I thought, how am I going to do this? But Luckily, it worked, whatever I did, you know. Really complicated drum sound, isn't it? I mean, it, it kind of, as you say, it crosses over quite a lot. So that was a real audition killer, no doubt. Yeah. I remember trying to look for footage and when I actually seen Pete playing it, I, I thought he'd have like the floor tom somewhere else on the kit to make it easier, but it was just a regular kit setup. And it's like, it's hard to describe it now, but um, it's like his left hand is under his right hand and the right hand is still doing the normal groove, but the, the floor tom is gone. So you've got the stick kind of getting in the way. And I remember, <laughs> I remember I played it a different way um, and they were fine with it, but then I, I remember thinking to myself, no, this is wrong, it should be the way it is. And I remember a bit of a baptism of fire. I thought, no, I'm gonna do this. And it was Manchester Arena doing a gig with James. I thought, no, I'm gonna try this. And like halfway through, I just got myself completely muddled up with it. And I just thought, oh no, why didn't I do this just in front of like a thousand people instead of like 20,000 people, you know? But um, they're the moments, aren't they? Like you get into a sort of, um, you get it, like you become comfortable on tour. Like I always like say, like the first five or six gigs, you're kind of feeling the set out. And then once you get into that, that's when you become comfortable and you start to enjoy the set because you you know you're playing everything right. But with the back of love, that tune in particular, it's quite it's quite difficult to master and get your head around. I did get there with it in the end, but it took a while. Let's just say that. <laughs> it's a high tempo too, isn't it? It's really yeah, drives, yeah. doesn't it? Really driving sound. Well, Mac used to call it like he used to in his set. He used to say it was like the Holy Trinity. It was uh, the Killer Moon, the Back of Love, and the Cutter. He used to call them the Holy Trinity. And 
you know, even even with Mac, when I when I think about Mac, he's just he's just so funny with everything, like the way he communicates on stage. You know, it's all hand gestures and it's a bit James Brown esque the way he used to communicate with his band. Um, so like he he would he would kind of dictate the volume by cues, like with just like like he'd raise his, his his index finger on his left hand and I'd know to push it a bit more. And it was a real like initially I used to think. Oh, why is he why is he doing this you know i know what i'm doing but then i realized as you as you're going through the tour it's like he's reacting to the room you know every gig's different you know they do a gig in amsterdam it's completely different to doing a gig in glasgow or like new york or la whatever so the way he used to con it was like he was conducting the band on stage and I, I, he still does it now and it's it's it it was always interesting to to sort of watch him do this and react to it as well initially i used to just just ignore it and then i'd realize that now i need to go with what he's saying here i need to sort of bring the band down or i need to push it more but with the back of love or the cutter it was just go for it because they're the bigger sort of dynamically loud tunes um but yeah it was a real sort of an education playing in the bunny man i would say that um you know the way will would improvise because um, there was a lot of songs in the Bunny Man set where, say for example, Nothing Lasts Forever, which we've just discussed, it was, you know, we'd, we'd do like the, the sort of song and when it get to the outro, we'd go into um, Midnight Hour and then he would go into um, a lot of other different songs, but he would just like ad-lib covers into the song and Will would react to that as well. And as a band, my, well, my job is to save the song, but I also had to go with that as well and... Lips like sugar towards the end when I was in the band. That was a it was an unbelievable outro for that. It used to go on for like twelve minutes. It was like the first encore. Um, but we'd just do so many different like he'd, he'd add lib lyrics and then the band would go really loud and then really quiet. And I don't think there's many other bands out there that do that. And it was a real education for me, sat behind the kit to just sort of see how these two legends dictate the the set. And that's just down to their own musical experience and, and knowledge, but also as well, you know, they've been doing it for such a long time, they know what to do. So yeah, it was a great, it was a great honor and just a real sort of interesting way of how they approach their craft. I've always loved the Bunnymen and um, right away back to the early doors. And I, I, certain things just jump out at me, the, the way their sleeves were set up. And I remember always thinking it's, it's a complete package with them. Everything about it, lyrically, the look, the trench coat, the, the kind of, you know, and, and they were the Liverpool band for me at the time. There were so many good bands coming out of the city, but they were the Liverpool band. And my standout track has always been All My Colours. When you said tribal, it really resonated with me because it is, the style of it is. It's such a standout track, that one. And the reason it stands out for me is when I first saw the Bunnymen was in the O2. And we've talked about this and I think you were playing it. It was one of the most amazing moments of my whole life. To see them play at the O2 in Liverpool was incredible. And I'm sure you were drumming that night. Probably was, yeah. We used to play... Um... Oh, do you know what? It must be like 15 or 20 gigs I did in that place with the Bunny Man. It was like always Christmas gigs. So sometimes we do two nights, sometimes some nights we did three. Um, but yeah, they were great shows. I mean, that that room upstairs in the O2 Academy, it was like 1,200 people. So like you, you, I, you, we do bigger gigs, but they were always the special ones, you know, and we'd always mix the setup as well. So Mac would the first night do, you know, a particular set of songs that leaned on certain albums and then the, the next night it'd be completely different um just talking on zimbo it's like the drums are the most prominent part on that track and even when you think about the the sort of arrangements of that it's like what will's playing in the bass line as well as just sort of complement what the drums are doing i don't think there's many bands out there that would have that you know it's quite um it's just like quite a solemn tune. It's quite it feels sad, but at the same time, when the chorus kicks in, when especially when the snare comes in on it in particular, it's powerful. So 
uh, we used to tune like the um, the roadies that there were many roadies in that band, but like Wally in particular. Shout out to Wally if you ever listen to this. But we used to tune the drums like really low, and have like the tom sort of barely tuned. But it was more the attack. You had to really dig in with that tune. And a lot of the Bunny Men stuff, it's like getting musical um, technicality on this here. But like you have to dig in on them tunes. You're not. There's, you, you don't sort of like every every beat that you play is defined, and it's got to be meant. And if it isn't, it doesn't sound the same. So it was a real education for me to sort of like. I, I remember when I first started playing in the Bunny Men. I used to come off really tired really knackered you know and i speak to will about it and will was like oh yeah pete used to come off and he'd take his top off and he'd be wringing the sweat out you know so when when i started playing it harder and more meant that's when the gig for me became a lot more interesting and a lot and and it was always interesting from the start but it just sort of felt better and we we did um around 2010 we took we we did the first two albums back to back crocodiles and heaven up here we, we did that around the world and some of them gigs in america they were like nearly two and a half hours long so when you're coming off you felt like you'd you'd been in a battle really you know but just just really great shows and yeah they're, they're, they're such a seminal band you know the amount of bands that have, have have been influenced by them you know we'd have like arcade fire we remember doing gigs with Arcade Fire in Spain and Coldplay and stuff like that, and they'd all be in the dressing room in awe of, of Mac and Will. And Will's just so down to earth. He's like, oh, we like it, great, you know. It's like, he, honestly, he's such a cool dude, Will. Um, and then Mac, obviously, you know, he walks and talks a complete and utter rock star and, you know, means everything. And you mentioned him before about album covers and, and, and like, sort of the, the package of it. Very mysterious, weren't they? You know, like you you get like that Heaven Up Here album in particular, that that album shot. Mentioned to Andy, who you've done the, the podcast with, he mentioned when he was in uh, New York with Travis, like Mac went into the dressing room and was saying about like how The Man Who was kind of similar to Heaven Up Here. And you, there's been quite a few albums, remember like The Mannix, This Is My Truth, that album's quite similar. The Bunny Men just really thought about all that, didn't they? I know like Bill Drummond was involved a lot with it as well, but yeah, really like, you sort of look at the album covers and it represents and it kind of links intrinsically to the lyrics and the mood and the feel of the album. And that's what steps them apart from a lot of bands for me. But it's interesting you say about the, the Bunny Men show in Liverpool because a lot of the, the, the show is backlit. Obviously the smoke machine as well. You know, you end up coughing on the stage with the amount of smoke. But um, yeah, it just all adds to the mood. Like I, I, with some of them shows that we used to do, it used to like... About like half an hour, 45 minutes while the crew was sitting, like the support band goes off and then, you know, you're waiting to go on. I used to stand out in the audience sometimes and just watch like the smoke fill the room. It was like the Bunny Men shows start as soon as the support band finishes because the, the even like the playlist, the songs that they play before, you know, they come onto the um, the bells, don't they? The, the chant, sorry, the Gregorian chants. Um, it's really setting the mood. And... You know, I've been on a few few gigs with Mac where, like, say, festivals as well, where he's like, you know, follow that, <laughs> you know, to other bands. It's like there's a, he's, he's quite cheeky with it, but, you know, genuinely, it's quite a, it's, they're, they're so unique in the way they set up the gigs, how it's lit, it's it's all thought about. You know, even going back to Crocodiles, the first album, where they all dressed in, like, the army gear and the camouflage, and when we were doing that, we all wore camo, and, yeah, just they just really think about things. It's like the songs are enough, but then they go that extra mile with everything else. And, you know, the, the guys who, who were in the crew as well were all a part of that, making it sound as good as it did, you know. Just interesting, just fascinating. Because from, from my point of view, starting out, you know, you're just abandoning a rehearsal room and you're trying to make the songs as good as possible. Then when you get a little bit of traction and you get a little bit of uh, notoriety in terms of labels kicking around and all that, then they're asking you to think about how you look and your image and all that. I always got the feeling with the bunny men, it was just natural. They walked and talked and meant it. But when you look at the difference between, say, Ocean Rain when it came out, it was a very different album. Again, a very brave album. There's not a bad track on that whole album, I don't think. What's what's your your take on that album? With that album, I've like spoke to Will and Mac a lot about this because we we actually that was the it seemed to be like they were again one of the first bands to do that whole album you know, in chronological order for a show. So we did the Albert Hall in London. 
Um, we did New York Radio City. That was my first gig in America, Radio City Music Hall. Talk about a baptism as a prism of fire for that, Jesus. Um, and then we also did the arena in town. Um, and sort of trying to get into their headspace of, well, f from a drumming point of view, it was brushes for the vast majority of it. Yes. But he wasn't playing them like a jazz drummer. He was playing proper loud with brushes. So like for the rehearsals for that, I was breaking brushes left, right and centre you know, all the time. But yeah, they, they kind of, I guess it come from, Bowie was a big inspiration for Mac and Will. And I kind of, th my own sort of take on this, I mean, they're probably so different, but I think they were kind of, because the, the people they were listening to, like Bowie, Lou Reed, Stooges, whatever, The Doors even, they never sort of stay, like stood still with the music output. Like Bowie, every single album's different, isn't it? He was like, go against the grain, you know? It's probably like record company executives nightmare, that, isn't it? You know, if you've made something good, keep doing it because it's selling. But I remember Will uh, saying in particular that he wants to get the acoustics out. So a lot of that album is acoustic led, isn't it? Um, and they went to to, uh, to France, didn't they, to Paris to, to do a lot of the recordings. And Will spoke fondly of, you know, they took the bikes over and were riding around the Parisian streets and just get really getting into that flavor. And I think you can hear that in the album. You know, it does have a, a different sort of vibe to it in comparison to the three previous albums. Um, and then Mac recorded his vocals in Liverpool. Um, but yeah, just a, a very, it's a, it's a sort of beautiful, it, it, from the production elements of it, it's quite beautiful to me. You know, there's lots of space in the reverbs that are used and, you know, it's a perfect album to put on to sort of relax to. It's just beautiful. The orchestration on it as well is, is incredible. And when we did the Motion Rain shows, uh, the first three, we had, I think it was the London Metropolitan in, in um, for the Albert Hall and then, and then they came up to do the Liverpool one and then we had the New York Met as well. And just the rehearsing with the orchestra was just, again, it was like, wow. Like Will always said it was like a a jet engine taking off behind you because it just feels like you're being propelled on the stage, the sheer force of music that's coming from behind you. And from a lad, for a lad from Liverpool who's, you know, just joined the Bunnymen, that was like, again, whoa, what the friggin' hell is this about, you know? Um, and then you can't musically, you're kind of trying to react to that as well. But it was just, just a really, really good time to be playing them shows. I mean, we did more shows around the world with that, but them, them three in particular, you know, we all got suited and booted and made an effort. And um, just like the track listing on that album as well. So when it gets, to, I think it's like track six or seven when the Killer Moon kicks in, again it lifts the album and then culminating with um, My Kingdom and Ocean Rain. Ocean Rain's a beautiful song, it really is. All hands on deck at dawn, sailing to side shores, your port in my heavy storms, harbors the blackest. We always used to end the set with Ocean Rain, and you would always see like grown men crying, like tears, yeah. And when the very first Ocean Rain gig that we did, which was the Albert Hall, I remember playing that and feeling emotional myself about it. Especially when Mac goes for that big note at the end and he belts it. It's like, wow, it grabs you. It's incredible you say that because, again, that's a really emotional song. And, you know, it's one of those songs for me that makes me want to well up. Just you talking about it then, I can feel it. I can feel the way it's making me feel. And it is, you know, all at sea again and now my hurricane. Mac is an incredible lyricist. He really is. It, like, some of his lyrics on, on, on them early records as well, and you consider his age, it's like, wow. You know, like, you were talking about Ocean Rain there, the way he's describing the scene. You know, you do feel like you're instantly put into that context of what he's trying to put across. Don't think he's spoken about enough as a lyricist. Mac is incredible. Mac used to sit on tour buses and do cryptic crosswords. That's what he likes to do, you know, and, and he's always trying to think of words and anagrams within his words. And yeah, he's just, he's just got such a way with words, Mac. And, and when you sat there playing them songs and you listen to how he's delivering them lines as well, 
I mean, even if you go back to stuff like Villiers Terrace, the first album, you know, it's quite political. I remember him saying about dancing, or, and, oh, sorry, Never Stop, that tune, Never Stop. It's quite political, but I never got that from the lyrics until he told me about it and about, like, the fact you're around that era. Um, yeah, he was. He has a way of painting pictures with his words, and um, Ocean Rain in particular is is one of them where you do feel playing it and listening to it even now. And I still put the records on now, and it's like wow, you you instantly put, you, you know, you do feel like you're on on the deck of a ship, lost out in the sea, don't you? Which is to capture that musically is quite difficult, but they did that. And, and his lyrics, the testament to that as well. Having that orchestra around you, wrapping around you, enveloping that sound, taking it to a different level, yeah. must have been incredible because you, you weren't in the recording studio when it was, when it was recorded. Yeah. So for you to be part of that, yeah. that's a special thing. I listened to that album nonstop for like five, six months before them gigs. And then I remember we rehearsed in Liverpool as a band to get everything up because no, it was quite funny. I remember like being in the in the rehearsal. We used to rehearse in Park Street in the studio in Studio One, and I remember Will like going, "What's that song? Did I play that?" <laughs> like Will, of course you did. It's you. So there was a lot of that kind of figuring stuff out and how we're going to approach this. And once we finally got that together, then we went to London to Olympic Studios, which I believe is no longer around. So that in itself was like, "Wow, the Stones recording there, Jesus." Um, and then the orchestra were there and they're very much like scheduled with what they do. You know, it's like, okay, you, we're going to rehearse from 12 till quarter past one and then we're all on a break. And we're just getting going at that point, you know. So there was a lot of that time, like the first day or so was kind of trying to all align and get on a, on a, on the same page with things. But then once, once they started playing, especially Ocean Rain, that was the one. Um, and Silver as well, the first track. When, when them violins kick in, you're like, wow, you know, this is incredible. And then the album just come to life in the rehearsal room, you know, from, from it being of a, a point of view of trying to work it out to then hearing it complete. I think I, I'm proud of them shows, really. I'm a, I feel like Max says, I think still today in interviews, that like they were they some of his favourite shows out of like a 40-year career or whatever. So they were good. It just felt like a bit of a like a church kind of experience, you know, like people were coming to worship them songs and our job was to just realise them on the stage, but then you become more and more involved and emotionally attached to them. Um, and it doesn't work with every band, I feel, because they don't have the songs, whereas the, the Bunny Men do. And, you know, they're not revered enough, in my opinion. They're a seminal band and it was, you know... To be involved with them shows were, was was something else, really was. I knew I was in a massive band when we did them gigs. I did because, you know, you realise how how them songs are held so dear to a lot of people. Just looking out and seeing, you know, a lot of emotional people in the crowd when that song was played. You know, obviously, that's the thing about songs, isn't it? It can mean something to one person and the next person. It can mean something different. And you can kind of see you know, like what music means to people there. It's kind of, um, it gets people, like from, from my own particular point, I have songs that I listen to that I, when I listen to now that have got me through difficult times or, you know, have made me think about life in a different way. Ocean Rain and The Killer Moon and, and all them other songs, that, that you know, they've, they've lived with people for a long time and, you know, it's kind of like, it's like memories, isn't it? When you're playing them songs for people. So we're kind of triggering points of view in people, feelings in people. And to be on a stage and watch that in audiences' faces, something else. It's the, it's the love, that's why we do it, isn't it? You know, It's not just about going on stage and getting off stage and getting your money and going home. It's, you, you know, you're more emotionally invested in, in that. And it took me a while to work that out because it was all about, right, okay, I'm a drummer, I want to get in a band, I want to get on a bus and I want to go around the world. You do that once and then you go, well, what's it about now? And then you realise that it's more about the connection you have with the audience. Les Patterson, the uh, the bass player, he used to say, I think one of his quotes was like, it's like a, a game of tennis with the audience. You know, you, you kind of, you'll do something and the audience reacts to it and then you've got to react to that. 
that's what I, that's what the bunny men was for me every night you go on and you know nine times out of ten the set was pretty much the same with the with, with the odd song different but the reaction of the audience to all of them songs each night was completely different completely different well respect to you for being a a true custodian then of those records because they as you rightly said do mean a hell of a lot to a hell of a lot of people and you can't just robotically bang them out let's talk a little bit more about how this how it makes you feel emotionally where do you think that comes from what, what do you think the connection is between you and music how far back does it go um i remember Going back, so like say like maybe the age of three or four, there was always music around my house. My dad was a big music lover. My mum was a fanatical Beatles fan, which is probably part of the course being a Liverpoolian, but you know, they were a seminal band. And I remember hearing like She Loves You as one of the big first songs. Um and just being wow, like the melody capturing me and making me feel alert. And then subsequently hearing that from the same place as you kind of makes you feel, okay, well, if they did it, maybe I can. Um, Fleetwood Mac, Rumours, that album in particular was a big one. I remember like my mum and dad playing that a lot. And I know that came out, I was born in 81, so that was, it was earlier than that, wasn't it? But that was still a big album. And like um, Billy Joel, my dad loved Billy Joel as well. So that's where like it started for me. And then I guess it was just around, but I didn't really notice. And then I kind of got to a point where it was like the age of 11. Um, and I was a bit of a fan of Queen and Freddie Mercury died. And there was a tribute concert, uh, an AIDS tribute concert. And there was all these big American bands, Guns N' Roses, Extreme, Metallica. And I was just, I just found myself watching the drummers and just seeing all these, like, cause with the drum kit, there's a lot of different instruments within a drum set. And sort of seeing that motion of the right hand over on the hi-hats and the left hand underneath and sort of, I remember physically like just doing that and just thinking, okay. Um, and then Bowie came on and did uh, his little bit and there was like Tony Iommi and can't remember who else saw, but there was a load of big artists. And it, it was, I remember it was on all day. And I remember it was a gloriously hot, it might have been early summer. And I remember all my mates being outside playing, but I didn't want to be outside. I just wanted to watch this gig. And I think that was the point where my mum was like, okay, well, do you want to get a drum set? And obviously I was like, yeah. But they decided to get me a snare drum first. And when I've asked them about this recently, they said, well, we wanted to see whether this was like a fad, like a phase. But when I remember getting the snare drum and just sort of looking at it at first and thinking, well, what do I do with this? And then getting some sort of advice about rudiments. So I started doing that. And there must have been from like, so my birthday was in July and then it was Christmas. That Christmas, I got a drum set. I remember going downstairs and seeing like, like wrapping paper just as a sheet across it. You know, it wasn't even perfectly wrapped. And then from that point on, there was no going back. I mean, I wasn't, I was okay in school, but my mind wasn't there. It was all about drums. And at the same time, I became really interested in Nirvana. They were the big band for me. And I used to just, run home from school. Luckily it was in like a, a detached house. So I knew I had a window of opportunity between like say, well it was from half three. I used to leave school early, just run home, get on the kit. And I used to just play along to all my favorite records. First gig was Guns N' Roses in 92, Milton Keynes. And I remember, um, I think Andy mentioned it in his in, in the podcast he did with Andy as well, but you, you know, like being in a crowd and, and hearing like the kick drum like resonating right through you. It was feel like you used to punch it in the stomach. I was just like, wow, 
what is that sound? And then literally going home and putting my records on loud and not having that same kind of feeling from it because I mean, obviously, like, like yeah, the, nowadays it's not like that. You know, there's a lot more health and safety around it, but like, literally, you felt like you were being beat up by the drums. That excited me a lot. Welcome to the jungle. And then I guess like the Britpop thing, Oasis were a big band for me, going to see them. And then I think that's the point as a musician, when you've obviously got an interest in it and music is always on and it makes you feel a certain way. But when you actually go and see a band live or an artist live and there's that more personal connection, because I used to feel when I used to go to gigs, even though there was like a thousand to 40,000 people in the room or the stadium, I felt it was just me there. And it was just me and the band, and it was a, like a real personal interaction. That's never gone away, and it's still with me now. And even now when I put music on, I imagine, well, what will that sound like live? And because of that, I thought, well, this is what I've got to do. And I remember being in school, didn't really have music lessons in school. It was more like someone coming in and playing like Gershwin on the piano and the rest of the class in a comprehensive school in Liverpool, not really enjoying that, but... So that wasn't really at like a particular point in school where I was interested with it. I was just really invested in music and having a Walkman and like doing them tapes and, you know, Radio 1 playing live gigs and recording them and just listening to it constantly over and over. It just lit the fire in me. And I thought, well, that's what I need to do. And I remember being in school and, you know, the careers officers would come in and say, well, what, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, I want to be a musician. And they go, yeah, but what do you want to do? Well, no, that this is what I want to do. I want to be a musician, um, which is great. Like with places like where we're in now with LMA, where you know you you can actually help people realize the dreams. It was a lot more difficult back then, and I guess from like the working class background as well. It's like you know you, your options were quite limited. You know, you it was like football was a big one as well, but you know it's, it's quite hard to to become a footballer, isn't it? Um, but yeah, no, I just I just felt, I just completely fell in love with music and I don't think I'll ever fall out of love with it, ever. If you had to sum up what music means to you, how would you sum it up? It's it's everything really for me. Um, it soundtracks my life. It literally is my job, you know, and it has been for the last 20 years or so. And it just informs everything that I do from like whether I be at home doing house chores or whether I'm driving somewhere or, you know, where we are now in LMA, where we have the, the, the next generation coming through playing songs. It's give me, it gives me an opportunity to share my experiences, my knowledge and just guide. So music informs everything in my life, it really does. You probably feel the same way I do. It's a privilege to be able to share your industry experience and your, and your background and your and your, your knowledge with the younger generation, isn't it? Yeah. Especially with regards to music then, in your case, how important do you think it is that you've got this opportunity to be part of what the music scene's gonna hopefully be for this city, Liverpool, in, in the future? Particularly in this town, I mean, we've got such a rich history and background of, of great music and great bands that have come from this, this town. I think we were just talking then about the idea that um, you know, now in terms of like the next generation coming through, there's so much to write about. Like that, I can't remember the last time there's been a really great rock and roll band, especially in the charts. I mean, I don't really listen to the radio anymore. I used to when I was younger and now it's kind of like, oh, every song pretty much sounds the same. And, you know, it's the team of songwriters that are all producing these similar bands. And, you know, I remember like one one good band recently that I've I've kind of got into that band Fontaine's DC from Ireland, superb band, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and they're very political in their lyrics, and it's quite Marky Smith fall kind of, you know, lecturing in the audience. I just think it's really important now that the generation coming through are talking about what's happening because not to get too political about it, but you know, it's quite shit being in this country at the moment. There's a lot of terrible things going on. And I just think back to all these kind of working class bands that are coming through, always I've got something to say. 
And I think that's what's important about this city. We've always got something to say and we've always got something to believe in. And we've, you know, we, we, we stand head and shoulders with each other and we literally back each other to the hilt, don't we? And I think that's kind of, that's what I'm hoping for the future is that, you know, this next generation that are coming through are actually all about having something to say because it resonates with people. And I think that's been missing for a long time. Don't get stuck in the past. Say your favourite things at mass. Tell your mother that you love her. I go out of your way for others. Sit beneath the light that suits you. And look forward to a brighter future. Life ain't always empty. Life ain't always empty. That hero's death is just... Yeah, superb band, really good band. More of that is what is needed. That's what I think. My personal take, anyway. <laughs> uh, big shout out to another band that I saw lately as well, uh, which I think you need to listen to is a band called Stone from Liverpool. Uh, you need to listen to them because talking of Prowl on the stage, uh, the lead singer, uh, Young Finn, uh, yeah, 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 he really prowls the stage, and uh, it was electrifying when I saw him live. Yeah. I, I know the cast boys. I know Pete Wilkie really well. Keith O'Neill's a good friend as well. And John. So I, I'm aware of them. Yeah, I need to check them out. I mean, John's a great performer, isn't he? The Lars as well. They were a really important band from Liverpool. And yeah, that's just this. I think it's just that like sort of cyclical nature of rock and roll that needs to come out of this town. And yeah, I can't wait to see what the future brings with that. And hopefully, you know, it's it's guitar music because I think I think it's important to say at the moment. I mean, like from a radio angle and from a from a sort of commercial point of view, guitar music is probably struggling a little bit at the moment. I mean, I know there are lots of great bands out there, but they're not getting the notoriety and the and the recognition that they deserve. Maybe Radio One's got something to do with that. I don't know, but hopefully the tide will change with this because. There's nothing more exciting. Like we were, we were talking about, um, you know, being at a live performance or a gig. You know, that moment when a band hits the stage, there's nothing more exciting than that. That is just, wow, there they are. The audience has been waiting. You know, the band have been waiting off stage. They're off the bus, they're in the dressing room waiting to go. And when that, when that moment hits, when the band starts and the audience hear it, that's electrifying that moment. And there's nothing that will ever beat that for me personally anyway. So hopefully, like the live, I know the live thing is obviously took a big hit recently with with the pandemic and all that. But yeah, that's the biggest thing that I've missed is like going to a gig and just really getting that moment, that exciting feel, you know. And obviously playing as well. I truly missed that that experience of being in the in the audience and 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 seeing the band play live. Really did nothing like it. Yeah, no, it is, and and you know the the, the sort of gathering, the mass of people. No, there's nothing better being stood in a, in a in a big crowd, and everyone. It's like being at the match, isn't it? It's like going. I'm, I go to the match week in week out with the Reds, and you know you feel a part of something. It's like a like a, a family. <laughs> Not to sound too hippie-ish here, but you know everyone gathering at the same point to see one thing is exciting, and seeing how a band reacts to that as well, especially new bands when they're coming out. It's like how do they command the stage? How do they? control an audience how do the songs make people feel i always find it fascinating when you're in a gig and you see people reacting in different ways to you or like you know their favorite song comes on it's like it's a real sort of moment isn't it you were saying with zimbo as well like it's like songs mean things to people and as a musician as a writer myself when you write something and some someone connects with it Again, it's like that meeting an audience thing. It's, there's, there's nothing better. It means something to someone. Well, you know, you're doing your job well, aren't you? This is the perfect opportunity for me to talk to you about the Black Velvets then, because mm. I know not only were you a founder member of the band, but you were also a key writer for a lot of the songs as well. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the Black Velvets. Um, Tell me about the band itself and tell me, you know, how, how it came about. And, and also just, just lead me through some of those songs. Yeah, great time. So that was probably the first professional, proper musical context scenario I was involved with. So um, the, the other members of the band, Dave, Paul and Robbie, we all kind of got together around 2003. We'd all been in previous bands. I was in a band with Paul before. Dave was in a band called The Skylarks, who were quite a, one of the best bands from Liverpool around that time, in my opinion, um, which also had Paul Malloy, who was in the Zootons and Coral. Um, 
So yet they split. The band that I was in with Paul, we split. And me and Dave got together and started writing together um, and just basically kicking around ideas. Uh, and then from that, I got my confidence to write myself as well. So we were, me and Dave were kind of writing together, but then I started to write as well on my own. And then we formed the band. And then it was just a whirlwind. It really was. That's the best way I can describe it. We did our first gig in the Picket, uh, which used to be on the Harbour Street, Fillets and Neil Robinson. Um, and literally the following day, I remember being in Tesco in Old Swan and Alan Wills, God bless his soul, like he phoned up and he said, I was at the gig last night and we think you're brilliant and we'd like to help. And I was kind of like, this is a bit of a weird phone call. There's someone taking the piss here or whatever, but you know, he genuinely was. And Alan was crucial in our development because Alan really believed in us. He didn't want to sign us to Delta Sonic because I don't think we would have fit, well, we wouldn't have fitted on that label with the other roster of bands at that time. But he knew that there was something there and he believed in us. And that gave us the confidence. He put us in a studio called The Ranch, which is uh, Vauxhall Roadway. And we went in with a guy called Scott Carney and we produced the, uh, just the, like five song demos and they were fantastic. They were just, it was a really exciting time. And just to hear some of the songs that I'd wrote and then also wrote with Dave to hear them realised was amazing. And then after that, it went crazy. We were told to stop gigging. Um, and we were in room one and crashed as we were speaking. And literally there was lots of industry coming down. Uh, and we settled with uh, Vertigo, which was an imprint of Universal. Um, and we were really excited by that because obviously the, the rich history of Vertigo was a label. They were kind of resurrecting that at that time. So like Sabbath and Quo and all that were on it. So it made sense. We got our management and then we went to record our album, which we did a little bit in Rack Studios. I know Andy was talking about that. Um, and we went to Ireland, a place called Grouse Lodge, which was um, right next to uh, the Guinness distillery. <laughs> so we were there for like a month or so, drinking lots of Guinness and getting fat, but really enjoying the whole experience. With uh, the producer, Mike Crossy, we went on to do like the Arctics and various other things. So again, that was just a, another amazing time of like first time being in a residential studio and really being creative. Um, we got our agent, Steve Strange, who's recently just passed away. Fantastic bloke. who's also the Bunnymen's agent as well. Um, and then, yeah, we just toured for a, a, quite a bit. It felt like a long time, but it was probably only about a year, really. Uh, put the album out. We were doing well. Like the first single, Get On Your Life, which is probably my favourite. Um, we released that in um, Black Velvet Casing which I was like, wow. Uh, the guy, Clive Corley, who I believe is the, uh, the MD Universal now, he, he was great ideas, man. So like our first single was out in black velvet CD covering and, and vinyl covering. I was like, this is the dream. <laughs> um, then the second single, uh, 3345, which was written about the, the bar in Parstreet, um, that went top 40. And it was like, strap our seatbelts in, this is gonna get nice here now. And then it just sort of fizzled out like things do. And it was quite difficult because we were doing all the major festivals and we were touring, but we kind of felt that things weren't really kicking off. And there was probably a, a, a number of reasons for that, but it just caught all kind of drizzled out. And by the end of 2005, the band was pretty much done, which is a shame, but you know, we had a great time and it kind of was a real interesting snapshot of of how like a band can just be mates and then all of a sudden be signed and you're living your dream, aren't you? So yeah, great times. Look back fondly on them. Love the lads as well. They're all great. And yeah, just a, a really interesting time. And then it's important to say as well from that, that gave me my opportunities elsewhere in my career. So, you know, from that, I went to do lots more session stuff. I did some stuff with uh, a guy called David Venn, The Broken Stars, which was really good through Mike Crossy, um, obviously the Bunnymen. I did some like pre-production stuff with Miles Kane. Um, yeah, just uh, it's 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 amazing how like the music industry is very much like a village. You know, once you you meet people and you 
they see you play or they listen to your music. It's kind of, it just kind of snowballs from there. Um, and being nice and being polite, I guess, are, you know, also contributing factors. But yeah, Black Velvet, they were a great band. You know, a, a four-piece rock band from Liverpool. There's not been many. And, you know, that album's on the shelf and I've not listened to it for a while, but, you know, it's, it, I'm proud, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a good, it's a big part of my career, I guess, yeah. Let me dig a little bit deeper into uh, into the writing side of you then. Do you think because you've got such an, an emotional connection to music that that's where that the ability to write comes from for you, maybe? Undoubtedly. Um, you know, I, I guess my sort of taste in music are, are music that's loud, I guess, and sort of prominent and... You know, I can definitely relate stuff like from the Black Velvets kind of right and linking that back to I was saying about going to see Guns N' Roses and, you know, the loud nature of it. There's nothing better than a, a, a loud band in a rehearsal room and you get excited by it. So you kind of feed off that. Um, around the age of 15, 16, I picked up a guitar and figured out chords and, you know, the usual kind of intricacies of playing a guitar. And then from that, when you start piecing chords together or like riffs or whatever, that naturally just evokes something in me. Lyric lyrically, is, it's always been a little bit more of a struggle um, just because you're trying to, you're so ex I was so excited by the music. It was like, oh, I just need to put some words to this and then just whatever, you know. Um, but yeah, it definitely, it definitely like my past experience and like you, you, you kind of, you're drawn on your inspiration of the bands that you listen to and that naturally comes out in your music. And I think that's the same for any writers, isn't it? But what was like really interesting to me when we actually signed was uh, one of the other um, A&R guys, Richard O'Donovan, who was a great bloke. He gave me so much good advice of like, I want to know about you, who are you? And you need to write about that. And he encouraged me to like get a, a little black book and just when you're walking around, there's inspiration everywhere. And that's something that I tell the students in LMA all the time is like, you know, inspiration is around you. You just need to open your eyes and look. Um, so yeah, your inspirations always come out, don't they? Sometimes you're not even aware of it. And then when you are aware of it, it's like, wow, this is amazing, you know? So pick me a song then. What's what's the song you think from the Velvets collection that, that sums up? I think Get On Your Life, yeah. It's just got such a it's we tried to make that band really glammy. So we well, is that even a word? We were into glam rock basically, so Get On Your Life's got a bit of a swagger about it. Um Yeah, it's just turn it up loud, I'd say. It's brilliant. I like it. <laughs> and that'll do for me. So yeah. Get on your life. That's the tune. How much of an influence was there in in that then from from what I consider glam rock, that sweet Slade, mm. you know, um, what about that? Did, did that influence you? Did you look back that far or not? Yeah, we did. Um, so Paul, the singer in that band, was very into his glam. Like Bowie was like that Diamond Dogs album. We listened to that a shitload when we were recording that album. Um, you know, we used to walk onto Ballroom Blitz. <laughs> Seriously, yeah, that was a great... Um, we used to love the, the feel like it's more like I guess being a drummer what I was really interested in with the glam thing was the, the, the rhythm and the feel of it you know it's so simplistic in what it does but it naturally makes you move and it makes you want to um, react in some way shape or form T-Rex was another big one for us as well. Um, I remember Clive speaking about Clive Corley. He actually brought down um, to one of our recording sessions um, the, the uh, mid 2000s. There was a there was a box set of T-Rex stuff and all on Earth um, outtakes and B sides and rarities and stuff like that. And yeah, that that sort of feel and it's not so much heavy. It's just got a real swagger to it, and it's difficult to sort of put down and, and capture but yeah t-rex were, were huge 
trying to think back when we were on the bus, what we used to put on. It was like a lot of that like 70s um, glam rock type of stuff we were listening to at that time. But then also as well to say that towards the end of it, we were, we were kind of all veering off into different directions as well. I kind of got more into the psychedelia, like the, the sort of West Coast sound of America and like the Velvet Underground and stuff like that, which led nicely into the Bunnymen because obviously Will and Mac were big Velvet lovers, Lou Reed, that kind of stuff. But yeah, you just always sort of look back. And when we were saying about um, sharing your musical interest, especially with Will, you know, every day was an education. I remember like just being in record shops with Will, like going to Amoeba in LA with with, with Will and, uh, you know, it's such a treasure trove of like, wow, look at all this music here. I'm buying records just because of the artwork. You know, it's like got a really psychedelic painting on. I'll buy that, getting it home and nine times out of 10 it was shit. But, you know, you would find one song that was, wow, have you heard this? It's like communicating to people, isn't it? Like we were saying before, you know, if, you, if if someone's not heard something, I get excited by going, oh, you've got to listen to this. And then when they come back and say, I listened to that and I loved it, it's the goal, isn't it? It's the dream. It's like sharing this knowledge, which I do with the students as well. Oh, you like that? You need to listen to this. Like family tree of music, isn't it? When you think about it. You start at one point and then when you dig deeper, you find all this amazing music. It's, it's incredible. Do you think there's a connection to vinyl for you as well? I mean, are you talking before about that kind of record shop experience? I remember buying, I was on I was on a gig in America and I remember buying a, a Neil Young's Decade album, Triple Gatefold album, and I carried it around the whole of that tour when I was working and brought it back through customs at Heathrow in a carrier bag. How it didn't get broken is beyond me, but those are kind of special records. I carried that around and, and brought it back to the UK from Denver. Have you got albums like that? Harvest, actually, Neil Young. That's one. Of my, I mean, that just that is made for vinyl. That album, isn't it? Really is. It's like the crackle and the warm nature of it. Um, yeah, you know, like Pink Floyd albums as well, like uh, Metal, for example, um, like Side A Echoes, absolutely brilliant. There's something about the vinyl experience. Well, I, I can, I can, I can pinpoint exactly what it is. You know, you can't just put it on and walk away and do something else, because you have to turn it over at some point. The artwork itself. I, I was always the type of person, and I know, I know, we we probably share this, where, you know, it's is equally important part, isn't it, of looking at like, well, who produced it, where did they record it, you know, who played on it. Um, even to the point of like, who's mastered it? And you know, where was it pressed? And all that stuff to me is, should be happening when you're listening to it. Cause then you can really get a deeper understanding of what was going on in the artist's mind. The big thing about streaming for me is that you don't have that and it will never be the same for me. I, I'd like the vast majority, obviously I do listen to various streaming websites, just because of the, the sense of we all have this phone in our hand nowadays and it's ease to just do that. But when I'm in my house, it's always vinyl and it always will be. And like going to different places around the world, it was always like, well, what are the good record shops? You know, what where going to Amoeba in San Francisco and, and LA was just like, wow, this is amazing. This is the place, you know. I'm walking out with, with great like bootleg vinyls of, of like Nirvana or, you know, late, uh, sorry, earlier stuff. It's, it's what it's about. It's like, it's a treasure trove. It's like find, trying to find that thing, that new thing that's going to excite you. Tell me about the side project band that you did with uh, Will Sargent and Les Patterson. Oh, yeah, Poltergeist. Amazing. I love that. That was a great, great period. So that was around 2012, I think, 2013. Will um, had a lot of recordings and a lot of ideas that he'd been doing in his pod, his little studio that he's got in his house. Um, and he just asked me, he said, like, I'm going to do this this, um, this sort of instrumental project, which um, was called, the album title was called Your Mind is a Box, Let Us Fill It With Wonder. I was like, I'm in. That sounds amazing, you know. 
And he said something like, uh, I think the, the quote around that time, what he used for press was like, you know, there's, there's 12 or 14 notes in a scale and we intend to use them all. And I was like, this is fucking brilliant. So, and then he got Les, who used to be the bass player in the Bunnymen, the original member. And we basically sat in the elevator studios for about three months, just cooking up these these ideas that he had. And like, what was great about it was Will was very involved with everything to do with that. So he did all the artwork. He even like suggested the drum beats to me, like he programming stuff on Logic. And then it was my case to sort of realize them and bring them to life. It was all on click. And when we did shows, we all wore white uh, sort of scientist coats and there was visuals projected onto the stage. You know, it was very like, we're in Berlin or something here, and this is like kraut rock to extreme, but it was just, it was a really, really interesting time of, of like realizing Will's ideas and sort of getting it again, you know, with the bunny men, it's very much like Will and Mac. Well, this was just a real insight into what Will was doing and what, where Will was at with it. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's rocking, you know, it really is another album that you need to turn up loud and listen to. What track would you pick from that album? Probably Cathedral. It is definitely an album that you can put on and turn the lights off and listen to and just get lost in it. And I feel... I, I mean, obviously, for for the purpose of this, like, any of them songs, but like, I feel like you, you need to listen to it as a whole piece. That's what I would say. How much of a sense of being in Liverpool have you had throughout your musical career and, and how important is that to you? It means everything. I'm proud. You know, I'm a Liverpoolian, I'm a Scouser, and this town will, or city will always mean the world to me. Um, and just... More so from the point of view of like the touring aspect of being in America or, you know, Europe or wherever, you know, you they pick up on your accent or they know you're from Liverpool. It's like the rich history of this city anyway speaks for itself, but just a real proud. It's quite, it would have been quite easy for me at the age of 20, 21 to go down to London. I didn't want to. I just wanted to stay here and I love London as well, but it was more the case of, you know, you feel you feel like it, you're a part of something here, don't you? And it rubs off in the music as well, I think, you know, especially like the bands that have come out from this. To, like, for example, like The Lars, There She Goes, or Timeless Melody. That to me is Liverpool when you listen to that. It's like, it's like I've got a good friend, John Dawkins, who's a manager, Tom Crennan, and the other various bands. Like, he, he, he always says, you know, there's that thing about Liverpool, that sound where not so much like a sea shanty kind of, whether it's to do with being by the sea for us, but there's something about in the air that makes something very scouse and whatever. I mean, if I knew what that was, then maybe I could teach it to more people, but at the same time, it's just something in the air and we've always produced great bands and long may that continue. Just wrapping up then. I'm very conscious that we've talked a lot and we've not had many opportunities to play some tunes. So uh, let's do the Desert Island disc bit then. Um, give me two or three tunes that mean the world to you and, and maybe give me some sense of why. Okay. Um, well, let's have a Liverpool tune for a start. I'll go with Timeless Melody. It's perfect. It's got, you know, that pop sensibility to it with that great rhythm that the, the even like the, the the chords that are used, the key center, everything about I'm talking I'm talking like a teacher here, aren't I? But it's just the way that song makes me feel, the lyrics, it's perfect pop. And it is unquestionably scouse. So I'd have that. I think I would go for um, Ruby Tuesday, the Rolling Stones. I'll go for that. Goodbye, 
so many songs by the Stones, but Ruby Tuesday never fails to make me smile. I think I'll go waiting for the man, Velvet Underground. It's kind of a blues song, really, when you think about it, because it, it does have that AB form, but it just, you feel like, I, I like the lyrics in it. It puts me in a place. I love going to New York. I've always loved playing there. I love going there on holiday, and whenever I'm in New York, I always put Waiting for the Man on. It just puts you in a place. I like songs that put me in a particular place, in a particular feeling, and I think them three, what I've mentioned, I mean, there's so many more, to be honest, but, yeah, I feel like Waiting for the Man, great tune. Give me one pinch me moment then where you've thought, my God, here I am, standing, sitting, playing here. What would it be? A pinch me moment for me, and there's been quite a few, but one where I remember thinking, fucking hell, wow. We did uh, this festival in Mexico City called Corona Capital. It's like about 2010 time, and it was a massive crowd. I don't, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't even tell you the exact figure, but... It was over 80,000. And we went on after the Pixies. And I just remember thinking, fucking how did that happen? You know, um, and just walking out to a sea of people and just feeling at ease with it, feeling at home with it. You know, and six years before that, I was playing to like 30 people on Matthew Street. And here I am in front of this huge crowd, you know. It's definitely around the live feel for me. I've been involved in some great recording sessions doing David Letterman, one of the last ones, actually, in the Ed Sullivan Theatre. That was another huge moment. Uh, Jules Holland as well. But it's definitely around the live feel and just, like, sort of taking a moment to go, this is a big crowd and they're all waiting to see me play. How lucky. You know, that is what it's about. And then subsequently the first song dropping a stick, but you know, that's attention to detail. <laughs> but yeah, something it'd be something around that. It would be, you know, a big audience, um, the sun setting. Like that that sort of festival slot you do where you just you're not headlining, but you're just below and the sun's setting and it's like settling in for the evening. Magical. That's what it's about. It's what music is, isn't it? You've been listening to the Feeling Sound podcast with Nick Kilrow. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to speaking to you again very soon. <laughs>